0: Let me invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke and the 15th chapter this morning. We are in a four-part series examining uh, what is commonly called you know, the parable of the prodigal son. The Bible itself calls it really more of a tale of two sons. And we're going to be looking there this morning. Luke chapter 15. If you have your place, just go ahead and stand this morning. Three primary actors in view in this narrative a younger son, an elder brother, and a father. And today we will begin to move the spotlight and the focus away from the prodigal, the younger son, to the extraordinary acts of the father. For context, look at verse number 1 of that 15th chapter where the setting is uh, there for us to understand the context of what Jesus is about to say. Then drew near unto Him all the publicans and sinners for to hear Him. That's one side of the auditorium. And the Pharisees and scribes. On the other side, murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. Verse number 11, after rehearsing the joy that's found in heaven over lost things, using both a coin and a sheep as an example, now we, we move to a son. Verse number 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he, the father, divided into them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted prodigal his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land. And he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise. And go to my father. And I was saying to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And no more worthy to be called thy son. And make me as one of thy hired servants. Now he's rehearsing this speech in his mind and heart. You know, and every part of it's important. That I've sinned against heaven. That I've sinned against you. And I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And there's this third part. But would you make me like one of your hired servants? Is the request. Verse 20. And so now he's going to begin to fulfill what's been played out in his heart and mind. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. And had compassion and ran. He ran. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. Now remember the former rehearsal in his mind. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But then he's cut off. He never makes the request because he can't, to be like a hired servant. The father stops him before it can be said. But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it, and let us see to be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. This is the beginning of joy. Verse 25, now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he, the boy, said unto him, thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him. He hath received him safe and sound. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we look into Your Word in the next few moments. And, and I pray the familiarity of this story would not get in the way, Lord, of a deeper uh, reflection, contemplation of the depth of the things that are happening in this story. Lord, as You intended in all parables, Lord, it is to expose us to a reality, a truth, a principle that we may be missing... About ourselves. And Lord, it is a mirror for for us to examine our own souls in. And Lord, help us to do that today. And I ask it in Jesus' precious name, Amen. Thank you for standing. Stories and parables, um, narratives, these ways of communicating that Jesus did, Um, We're all done in a context, in a setting. You and I speak in a context. If you take my words out of context, you may not understand what I'm trying to imply. And these words have context. The context is key in determining the intent of the writer. But, But so, too, is a familiarity with the metaphors and the expressions that someone is speaking with. In Luke 15, Jesus is in the latter chapters of His earthly ministry. For two plus years, He has been articulating and demonstrating the love of God. He has spoken of His identity as Christ, that is, the God-man, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes. His words and His actions surprise people. They delight some. A holy man consorting with sinners, showing mercy, healing them, and inviting them to be participants in the kingdom of God? Hey, that was new. That was not the practice of the religious establishment of Jesus' day, and really none before it. Sinners of the overt type flocked to Jesus, for in him they found life, hope, love, forgiveness. But then there were others, as intimated in the first two verses of the chapter we read, there were others who rejected Jesus' ongoing invitation. They found his claims blasphemous. How can one claim to be co-equal with God? How can a man offer forgiveness? These stood at the forefront of their minds. But above these things stood his, the way he fraternized with sinners. The way he ate with them. The fact that he gave them attention was offensive. It was off-putting. They wanted a political Savior, one that would share power with them, the righteous. One that would elevate their status for, you know, they had been good. They wanted something different than Jesus. The issue Jesus is addressing here in the text specifically is the hostility that the Pharisees were expressing to Him for his love and interest in overt sinners, prodigals. He was targeting their lack of mercy and love that the religious hierarchy had towards the people who were common and simple. In their distorted legalistic theology, speaking of the Pharisees, God only loved the righteous playing loose with the definition of what is righteous, a cloak of righteousness, a perception of righteousness, a holier-than-thou sense of righteousness. In their theology, God only loved the righteous, as I've described it. He had no mercy for the overt sinners of the world. Law-keeping was the way. It was the door through which you know, we entered the home of heaven. Even though they revered the prophet Prophet Isaiah, who proclaimed all our righteousness as is as filthy rags, they missed that somehow. That was buried in the plethora of rules and laws, of do's and don'ts they had established as necessary to merit God's approval. They deluded themselves into believing that grace was extended only in a meritorious way. If you give enough brownie points, you get in. And they viewed the sinners and publicans, the Gentiles, outcasts, as having no merit, no points in God's economy. So Jesus here extending it metaphorically in the text and in the way he was doing it in life, um, they hated it. These men were blind guides, unable to see the truth about God, themselves, and the sinners on the other side of the aisle. So Jesus offers a trilogy of stories of the joy found in heaven over lost things. A man loses his sheep, a sheep, and then when he finds it, he tells people. They're all happy together. A lady misplaces a coin, and uh, she sweeps the house. She finds it, and she finds that um, worthy of being happy about, sharing that with her neighbors. And here a lost son is returned, and it merits the celebration of the Father and the sons. <clears throat> this detailed, dramatic story that Jesus tells. In front of admitted sinners and deluded saints is not meant to be comforting as we often read it. Oh, how sweet that a dad would do that. No, it's told to be shocking and confrontational and even somewhat jarring to sensibilities. There is nothing in the parable that would have made sense in the cultural context that he's telling this story. Nothing save one thing, the disparaging, revolting attitude of the elder brother, and they would have identified with that. His intent in the story is to expose, spotlight the um, the incongruity of the Pharisees' heart as it relates to God. They they're they're involved in a religion a religion does not that does not share the heart of God. Jesus is telling it to expose them and to give hope to the center, but unfortunately, only half the equation is accomplished in the telling of the story. And the story. A young man has two sons. The younger son of the wealthy patriarch breaks with cultural, historical, religious norms and makes an incredible, irreverent, insulting request. He asked prematurely for his share of the inheritance that should not have come to him until his father's demise. In effect, he's saying, I can't wait for you to die. I want what you have. It wasn't just precocious, it was a statement of intent to forsake the family. It would be like filing a divorce I'm just done with this family. It was the absolution of a family bond. It was the rejection of a father's love in favor of a father's wealth. In the context of the culture of honor and respect, which we do not have today, we have a vestige, a shadow of this kind of honor, mainly maintained in Oriental cultures today, certainly maybe more in Middle Eastern cultures. We, we don't speak of authorities and father's the way they expected people to then. They would have seen the younger son's request as debauched. Jesus audience and by the way, both sides of the aisle would have been like, "What? No, that's inappropriate. That that ought not be done anywhere." They were shocked. Amazingly, the father grants the request and divides the inheritance, and I don't have time, but that would have been like, he did what? He did not strike the son? He did not ostracize the son? He did not have the son stoned? He did not have him flogged? That's shocking, but for now, he just grants the request. He breaks the norm as well. That indiscretion of the father is soon overlooked as the young son descends into further insult into evil. He sells the land of his inheritance. (laughs) can't be overstated. No regard for what has been held in family trust for centuries. He leaves his homeland rejecting his father, the father's home, the father's love, to keep company with the heathen. He abandons his Jewishness in doing so. Then he prodigals, he wastes, he squanders, he throws to the wind the land that was held in centuries, the Father's love, all the investment, all the time, all that was done for him, he throws it to the wind in riotous living. With each ill choice, he descends and distances himself from the father's heart. The dad's not moving, but the son's covering a lot of ground. I I think about it. You guys are sinners today. The sinners hear this story so far. And just, you know, think about it. They're going, that's me. They can identify with part of the story. But at some point, they've got to say, but even I haven't done this. Because that's the point Jesus is making. I mean, he's pressing them further and further and further. So initially, man, I left my dad's house, but I didn't take his inheritance. And they're identifying with this like, that's me. Shame. Shame is piling. The Pharisees, you know the Pharisees today? They're aghast what a horrible child. He deserves, you know, all this retribution, and they vilify, and they scoff in unbelief at Jesus' story. The tale continues, and Jesus really continues in a proverbial way. As everyone probably expects in the room, there's pleasure in sin for a season, and then judgment A famine occurs that really typifies the emptiness of the young man's heart, and soon the prodigal is left with nothing. No wealth, no friends, no food, only shame. Humiliating shame. And this is just a testament to the depravity of man. In this lowly position that he is in, he makes himself now lower. He becomes a beggar. He joins himself no doubt to a despising citizen of that country. Your money is gone. Why do I care about what I care about you? And so the, the citizen to get him away from him offers him the most lowly, despicable, anti-Jewish thing that could be offered. I I I'm assuming fully expecting the young man to decline the offer. He says, Why don't you feed my pigs? You you get the insult there, right? They're kosher, they don't do pigs. But he does it The whole story is, at this point, to the whole audience, disgusting. But then the narrative changes. An array of I don't know sunshine, but pivot, in an unexpected plot twist. The prodigal, in his desperation, has a moment of clarity. You ever had one of those? <laughs> what am I doing? Is the way I would articulate that. He comes to himself in the text. He sees the truth. Here's the truth. My choices haven't taken me where I thought they would, at least ultimately. I did what I thought they might for a little while, but man, look where they've left me. Clarity. And I want you to get this, okay? This is important. When was the last time you think this guy thought about his dad? But now he does. And not just that. He thinks about him, and this is really important. He thinks about his father differently. He thinks about his father differently differently. Who was dad before? Oh, he was a means to an end. He was the source of wealth. He his house was a place of rules. His father and the father's faith somehow was keeping him from some joy that he thought he could he could have. The father before was the object of contempt, but now his view of the father, under a different light and microscope, is beginning to morph." Maybe dad's rules had a reason. Maybe what was keeping me, or that he was trying to keep me from, was not fun, but harm. Maybe the treasure I had all along and didn't see it was a relationship with my father, not his money. My dad is generous. Even his hired servants. These are not the servants that serve the family on a continual basis. These aren't the residents of of the property. These these are the poor of the poor servants. These are Mm. daily servants. These are the ones that are homeless, that maybe have a trade, and they come in for the day. Traditionally paid pennies. Barely covered their day. Often not. That's what he's saying. Even the day the poorest of poor uh, peasants that come to my dad, he gives them enough money, not just for the day, but they have left over. That's my dad. Now... up of the scheme, and I don't mean that negatively. A plan born out of cognition. Perhaps now the seeds of genuine repentance. And with me, look with me in verse 18. Here's his plan. I will arise. And I will go. I will arise and go to my father. And, when, and when I get to him... Understand, when I, the prodigal, get to him, here's what I'm going to say. Can You can imagine him rehearsing this, right? You ever offer an apology to anybody? You rehearse it before you say it? If you have any brains, right? I better think this thing through. I'll rise up to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of these lowest of lowest Peasants who barely survive. I, I am more than happy to live on the outskirts of your world. I just don't want to starve anymore. At this point everything begins to change in the story. It's a pivot, hard pivot. And I need you to listen to all of this. He changes his mind he changes his choices one with the other isn't highly effective he changes his mind he changes his choices he changes his direction instead of away from home towards home and in the process he's changing his heart and you can't imagine i don't we can't imagine how heart how hard it was, because he was going to submit himself to a kind of torture. When he left the Jews would have held a funeral service. There's a name for it in the Hebrew, but especially the son did this to his father, a funeral service is held. The son literally becomes legally to the father dead. It's not metaphorical language here, it can be used that way, but he's dead to the family, he divorced them. To come back was shameful. Prodigals, they were rare, but they never came back because the journey home was too abusive. He had to go, he had to go through his hometown, and, and there he would have been with derision and scorn and contempt. He'd been spat upon, perhaps beaten, all before he got to his dad. And then at best he could hope for was to live as a um, a peasant on the outside, on meager provision, that maybe his dad would have pity on him and give. It was it was a huge choice to make. He's now ready to receive retribution from his village, from his brother, from his dad. He's about to face unrelenting shame, reprisal, lasting loss. Of any former possession. He reasoned, maybe, just maybe I can be like one of these these slaves. But if I do that I won't starve. All this was undoubtedly his expectation. It was the cultural expectation that is so important to get in the story. The church demanded this. The community demanded this, unthinkable, inconceivable, that he could even approach the Father's feet without all this occurring first. It was his expectation, the cultural expectation, it was the Jewish expectation, it was the elder brother's expectation, as we will read later. But he decided better to leave his fate with the Father than with the faraway land. He repents is the word we would attach to it. I, I, I'm not going to make this from my sermon today, but I, I would implore you to listen. He repents. He repudiates his old way of life. Repudiate? Done with it. He makes a genuine U-turn, change of mind, change of heart, change of direction. He changes his opinion about life and about God about his father. He's humbled himself enough to um, accept the responsibility for the circumstances that are about to come his way, and that I put myself there, and he comes home. What happens next may warm our hearts as an act of compassion, the response of the father but it is the singular most shocking thing that happens in Jesus' story. It's sweet, it's not sweet. Jesus intended the actions of the Father to be jarring, countercultural, out of the norm. I'm gonna go refer back for a second to Middle Eastern culture to make sure you understand this. Even today, Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culture, Jewish culture, is Middle Eastern, is entrenched in mores and in norms and expected behavior in a way that our culture has, it it doesn't. It just doesn't have it. There are these things that you do and don't do there. And, And you can have an opinion about all that, all the rules, but that is their way of life. It's what they do. It's what they expect. And pinnacle and paramount to all of them is you show respect to parents and elders. Dignity was a key feature of the patriarchal society of that day. Dignity. And if violated, it was your your responsibility to make sure it was restored by any offending party you did that to me you 're going to make it up you 're going to restore my dignity. Shame and God help us was this cultural 's greatest indignity. <laughs> we can live it when we want and we don 't care that was, to them was anathema, that someone would look at my life and be shamed. It was the greatest humiliation. It was feared like leprosy to be shamed. The prodigal in the story no doubt expects to pay a high price in passing back through his homeland. Struck, derided, scoffed, mocked, treated cruelly. This may seem extreme for our modern sensitivities, but it kept the order, it served as a deterrent, and it was deemed necessary to pay for the sins of offense. The prodigal expected to fall on his face before his father to help restore his father's honor. To beg for his life or forgiveness, that maybe afterwards I could start repaying a debt Everyone expected this in the story. The father was expected to do this, but what the father does is exponentially more undignified, more unflattering, and more repulsive to the culture than what the prodigal had done. You don't get that, you don't get the story. He's not acting with Western civility and kindness. He's breaking all the prototypes of Middle Eastern culture in his response. It was aghast to his hearers. It was more shameful than what the son had done. The father covers and takes the prodigal's shame. I'm going to tell you how. And the way he does it is spectacle, perceived as scandal. The father sees the prodigal return, and there's significance in the phrase a great way off. The the idea is this he sees him before the village, before the the scoffing, before the derision, before all that's coming his way. And the father sees the son in view in all that's between him and the son. All the shame, all the harm, all the abuse. And seeing all that, with the greatest indignity, he raises his robe, exposing his elderly legs. There's no equivalent. Just what? And he runs. The old man runs. To this day, Middle Eastern culture, men don't run. Boys run, slaves run, men don't. Past 25, it's too undignified to run. You don't do it. Shameful. For 1,800 years, the Middle Eastern versions of the New Testament omitted the word run. They couldn't bring themselves to write it, because that's not how patriarchs act. They used the words, he hurried, he hastened. It was only 200 years ago that enough scholars wrestled with this truth enough to say, we're being dishonest to the text, and they put in the word, he ran. It's a big part of the story. He ran. Just like the descent into the shamefulness of the prodigal, the father begins to abase and humiliate himself to reach the son. The slaves, what is that guy doing? They're, they're running after the father. You've got to get a society. People are liking, what is that guy doing? Like, what in the world? It, it was beyond curious. It was like a scandal. Why would he run? Well, the answer to that is answered the next level of dissent of the father's indignity. Upon reaching him afar off, instead of allowing his son to kiss his feet, the father kisses, in the Greek, repeatedly kisses the prodigal's head. I, the picture. He falls on him. Okay, you got it? The father runs in shame and he covers him. He falls on the son. Robes, he covers. He covers his shame, his impoverished frame, his tattered clothes and his stench. It is a public display. And here's what he's saying: "He's not yours. He's mine." Him. He will not be abused. He'll suffer no shame. In substitution for the prodigal's derision, he offers his own. He covers the pariah, he cloaks him in love. He who knew no sin became sin for us. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. The Father in an unmistakable way was publicly declaring reconciliation. The word compassion in the text has no real equivalent in our language. It means to be gut-wrenched, for bowels to be twisted and turned. It implies a pity, a pity for all the son had done, a pity for all the, son, all the son had become, gut-wrenched. The pain for a love long rejected, now enjoined again. It was a gut check. Agony, rejoicing, pain, and hurt, joy, all twisting together, compassion. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's what the audience is doing at this spectacle. that's just too much. (laughs) He was despised and we esteemed him not. Make no mistake, the greatest pain of the cross was not physical, but the pain of rejection. But here the Father, rather than avenging the source of his pain, He loves it and forgives it. So the son's sin and shame was overshadowed and covered, atoned for. The repudiation people felt for the son, they now feel for the father. We do this. If you can't grab it, you you do get it. We look at something, they, they forgave that too easy. Oh, that's just shameful that they did that. That's what he does. How could such a reviled son who's abused so much be reconciled? That's unthinkable. No doubt the Pharisees were deeply offended. What kind of weak, pathetic, shameful father is this? But the father presses the story more, and on purpose, no doubt. He cuts off his son's reply before he gets to the servant part. Because if you're mine, you're not my servant, you're my son. He never gets to say the words, Make me thy servant. His return was enough. And he says, Bring me my robe. Whose robe? The father's robe. What kind of robe is it? It's a royal robe. He, he puts a ring on his finger. What kind of ring is it? Oh, it's the ring that comes that has all my authority attached to it. He put shoes on his feet. Well, what's the shoes? Servants don't wear shoes, only sons do. It's, it, is, it is pressing this as much as Jesus can press it. All this, no doubt, shocks the entire crowd. And, and for a moment, can you imagine the son? Bewildered confused, overwhelmed, we're supposed to see ourselves in the story. Amazing grace. Given no opportunity to merit, repay, or restore the grace that's being bestowed upon him, it's a gift. A celebration was called, the community is gathered, this is public. (laughs) So they all can clearly behold the reconciliation story, the renewed status of the prodigal. The fatted calf, normally reserved for weddings, was repurposed for a greater union. A son back with his dad. Let us be merry. <laughs> My brain is full of vivid imagination. He's telling this story. Okay. Here's the Pharisees. And uh, the dad said... Guys, let us be merry. For uh, my son, your brother was lost, and now he's found. So let's be merry. There may have been no such pause, but I imagine it. You're not merry. I'm telling you what God is like. Is the idea. You think he's like your religion. That's not who God is. You think he's like your patriarchal society. He's not like that. You think he demands and expects all of this. He's not like that. The focus is on the sin of the Pharisees, but the spotlight's on the dad and his unthinkable actions. And if I can steal for a moment, a word from verse twenty-seven: The brother comes back. What in the world? He asks a servant boy. And this place would have been crawling with people. What is happening? And this word is meaningful. He says, uh, "Your dad received your brother." The word "receive" means reconcile. Reconcile means all his status was restored. what the dead was communicating to everyone who could see it. Reconciled, accepted, reinstated. The dissolution is over. And the act closes. Where are you? Let's just remove all the facade and the pretense and the propriety of the moment. Where are you in relationship to the Father? I mean, really. Where are you in relationship to the Father? We are in far more danger of being like the crowd over here than the crowd over there as a group, the cloaked, the self-righteous, the proper, the dignified. I don't know. Where are you teenagers at in relationship to the father? Who are your friends? Where's your citizenship? What are you doing? I where, where are we at? Where are we at? Don't you get sick of the pretense of just the way we just kind of go through the repetition of our religion? Does, does, that, not, does that just grow weary to you? Do you ever feel phony and fake? when's the last time you felt astonished by the grace of God cloaking your indignity? Because make no mistake, pretty person, you're ugly. You're vile. Can, can we not be moved? Do we care not at the distance that Is between us and God. I'm not talking about proximity. The Pharisees were standing right next to Jesus. I'm talking about intimacy. The way a family's supposed to love each other. Is that can, can you? Just a picture. This is me, and God runs to me. Just, 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 just when I turn. We're too comfortable respectable, we're too full of pretense, we've accomplished too much. It's easy to lose sight of of what the Lord has done for us. And we need to ask God to help us go home. Not proximity, intimacy. Would you stand with me this morning?